Uh, you can go ahead and be seated. We are privileged tonight to have a friend of mine bringing God's word to us. Uh, Michael Smith is a pastor intern at Redeemer downtown. Uh, I think many of you know this. And, you know, uh, Redeemer has been so essential in helping us get started. We launched about, oh, nine months ago now. Uh, and Redeemer downtown uh, really chose to partner with our church. And one of the ways that this partnership is sort of bearing fruit is that we get to have people like Michael come over and, and share God's word with us and um, and just get to exchange our various gifts together. And so it is a real privilege to have him. So without further ado, please welcome Michael Smith to our pulpit. Thanks. Good to be with you guys again. to be with you guys again. Can you hear me okay? Good. All right. Awesome. Um, when I, I moved here from California uh, about five years ago, and uh, I remember uh, I'd get mixed reactions. I'd talk to New Yorkers, and uh, I'd be like, yeah, we moved from Southern California. And they'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Why would you ever do that? That's so stupid. You know, uh, why, that's the worst decision of your life. I really I remember talking to a lady in Queens, and she said it just like that. Um, and then I talked to my friends in California, and they're like, oh, we're so jealous. It's it's so cool over there, and oh, you're so lucky. And, and inevitably, aside from the, the coolness of New York and the concentration of excellent things, they say you get those four seasons, too, because, you know, California is kind of the same year-round. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, we do. And that first winter, I remember when the snow was falling, you know, it was like a movie. My kids and I are outside, and, you know, we're like, we're broke, but snow is free. It doesn't matter, you know, and so we're... You know, we're making snow angel, angels and throwing snowballs at each other. And it's like, it was from a movie, you know, one of those joyous times in a movie where a dad and his kids are, are playing in the snow. But that, that was like Snowmageddon, you know, so that, that was the first one. And so, like, it's like April and it's snowing again. And so now the movie scene kind of changed, you know. It's like one of those movies where it's like some guy alone eating cold jerky, you know, in the, in the woods and, and, and the, the, the fire's dying down. And I remember I knew my kids were, they were like, Daddy we don't want any more snow, you know? So it was like the good season kind of became a bad season. And in the passage of scripture I want to read to you, that's one thing that really jumps out to me. Um, I'll, I'll read it to you first and I'll point out um, this transition you see from a very good season to a very hard season very, very quickly. Um, so I'm at Mark chapter 1 and I'm going to be reading from verses 9. To 14. So it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So if you notice, what, what jumped out to me was, on two occasions, the word immediately is used. And they're both in very different contexts. It says, immediately, when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And this is marking the beginning of a new kingdom. This is marking the beginning of Jesus' official three-and-a-half-year ministry, where his goal was to rescue mankind from sin. So that's a good thing, right? That's a good season that Jesus did that. However, the next time we see immediately, he's being driven in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where he doesn't get to eat or drink anything for 40 days, 
where he's tempted by the devil himself. And just adding to that, John the Baptist gets arrested. So we go from immediately wonderful to immediately horrible. And perhaps you've had seasons like that too. I know I have, where it's just great and everything's, you know, the, 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 the birds are singing, the sun is shining. Uh, maybe you got that job that you were hoping to get, the promotion you wanted, you know, your kids are doing well in school, you can put that sticker on the back of your car, you know, my kid's an honor student or whatever. Uh, and then, in a moment's notice, you lose the job, your kid gets rebellious, your marriage runs into difficulties, you fill in the blanks, it is inevitable, just like the seasons change in nature, that seasons will change in your life. So, today as we look at this passage of scripture, I want to look at three main things. You know, one is, well, what's the good season? Because there are going to be good seasons in your life. Um, what's the hard season in Scripture? And then the third thing is, when you're in a hard season, what's the good reason for it? Like, what's the purpose of a hard season? Is there one? Or is God just mean? And, and he, he's a, he's like, he likes to, to dolt out punishment on us. I don't think that's the case. But we want to look at what are the good seasons, what are the hard seasons, and what are the reasons for the latter. So I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll see what God has for us. So God, thank you for your word. Uh, as you brought different people here today, God, uh, we want you to just fill this place. We want you to speak to us. So I pray that you'd help me uh, convey your truth in a way that is encouraging, uh, a way that is inspiring, God, a way that, that corrects us, that reminds us of your great love uh, for us. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So first I want to kind of paint the context because it's important. So before the passage we have, John the Baptist hits the scene. Uh, John the Baptist is... He's an interesting guy. Jesus said of all the men born of women, he's the greatest. So he gets that kind of pretty significant moniker. Um, to me, when I look at it, he's kind of like the first hipster. You know, he's got like a really cool beard, I'm assuming, because everyone did. Um, locusts and wild honey is what he ate, and you can't get any more farm to table than that. Um, he's got a leather belt. He's rocking camel fur. Uh, he's just this, this, he's a wilderness man, and he's preaching this message of repentance, and people are responding. So he's like this revolutionary. So he's this, this kind of strange character, and his main job is to kind of pave the way for Jesus. Jesus shows up now, and the first thing a different gospel captures it, but he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So that's Jesus' big entry. He's baptizing people. Now back then, a good Jewish person, a practicing Jew, would get baptized every day in a sense. You would go on the water, and the water would symbolically wash away your sins. And it was repetitive. I mean, imagine that monotony every single day. You had to do this over and over and over again. And so Jesus is the last one to get multitudes, hundreds, maybe thousands have been, have been baptized. And Jesus is the last one. And John's really hesitant. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just said you're the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why do you want to be doing this, this baptism, when, when you have no sin? And so why don't we pick it up looking at this? So... The reason Jesus got baptized is he's identifying with man. He's sinless. So this isn't, this isn't symbolically him getting rid of his sins because he had no sin. It's better than that for us. It's a good season for us because he's identifying with our sin. You see, in that water that John was baptizing people in, like I said, this, the sin was symbolically washed off. And Jesus is showing up and he's saying, hey, I am here to rid the world of this problem of sin. So he's identifying with man straight away to kick off his ministry. Baptism is a sacrament. It's a thing that, that's commanded of Christians to do. And there's two vantage points you can look at. One is the, the God word vantage point. So when God looks at baptism, he's reminded of a covenant. In the Old Testament, they used to 
uh, circumcised. In the New Testament, it's replaced by baptism. In Colossians, it talks about that very thing. So that's one way we're looking at it. Right? There's another vantage point, and that's kind of the human side of baptism. And that's when you get baptized, you're symbolically under the water, which symbolizes death. And then you're, super, you're, you're resurrected, if you will. You come out of the water, which symbolizes your new life. You're born again, in a sense. And so Jesus, what he's doing is he's saying, I am here to be the once and all sacrifice, going under the water, symbolically, a picture, a snapshot of what he's doing, taking our sin, and then I'm going to rise from the dead and conquer it. Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite pastors, he says this about what Jesus did. He says, as we see Jesus in the water, he already indicates how he will become our Savior by standing in the water by which penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and by allowing that water, polluted by their sins, to be poured over his perfect being. So Jesus comes down to do something about our sin. Now, when I was searching, you know, I grew up, my mom was Buddhist, my dad was Baptist, many of you have heard my story. Um, I grew up with these, these mixed ideas of what faith was, and uh, I remember the one thing that stood out to me about Christianity when I kind of began to uh, study it in college was in all the religions I looked at in the world, it was always man trying to do stuff to make God happy. You know, you're, you're trying to build this bridge to God. And you can do a variety of things, you know, from chanting to eating a certain way to being religious to, to going to services. To, there was some ascetic aspect of your life, but it was always me trying to get to God. Christianity stood out to me in that it was God coming to me in the form of Jesus. And we see this kind of personified right here. This is Jesus coming down to earth. He's been around for 30-something years. And he's saying, I am here for one reason. And that is to end this problem of sin once and for all. And before I kick off my ministry, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. So it's almost like a snapshot of the cross. I'm going to die for sin, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be risen because I didn't sin. The only way to die is to sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Since Jesus never sinned, he didn't die. That's why he rose on the third day. So you get almost like a, a, it's like a spoiler. It's like a, you know, a, a preview of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And so it's a good season so far because we get this identification with man. Jesus is coming down, identifying with our sin, and then showing what he's going to do to get rid of it once and for all. Right? The next thing we see, it says right after, so he gets baptized, and then it says immediately he saw, this is John saying, the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. I'm going to unpack that fully later, but just know that this is, this is a prophecy. In uh, Isaiah 64, Isaiah is crying out. He's like, if only the heavens would rend, if only the heavens would tear open, and that you would come down, God. So again, this reinforces what I said. What stood out to me about Christianity was it wasn't about me trying to get to God. It was God coming to me. So straight away you see a picture of what Jesus is going to do through his baptism. And you see this empowering of the Holy Spirit to fulfill his ministry. So it's like the seal of approval, in a sense, of God coming down to solve our problem, to solve the fact that we tend to run away from him. And so it's a prophecy fulfilled. So that's two good things we've got. We've got Jesus coming down, identifying with man. We've got a prophecy, 700 years old, that's fulfilled. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then it gets even better. You get this identification from God coming up. And so... Continue with me in Mark if you see it there. It says, 
So the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So it's like this triple threat scenario here. You've got this identification with man. You've got the Holy Spirit sealing Jesus. You've got these words from heaven pointing out the approval of Jesus. And what's interesting, Jesus hadn't done anything significant yet. He hadn't done anything to earn this. Well done, my son. I love you. So often we think of religion, we think of performance. I can't do this. I have to do this. Jesus hasn't done one miracle yet. He hasn't cast out one demon. He hasn't healed one person. He hasn't died on the cross. And God the Father still declares his love for him. That's the second thing that stood out to me about Christianity. One, it was not only God coming down to rescue me, it was this idea of him loving me unconditionally. This idea of grace, which I didn't find anywhere when I studied Buddhism, when I talked to my mom about it. This idea of getting something you don't deserve, grace and mercy. Titus 3.5 is one of my favorite Bible verses. It says, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So you don't get to heaven because you're a good person, the Bible says. You can't be good enough. You've got to be a perfect person to go to heaven. So God had to solve the problem. And before, no performance at all from you, based on the fact that God just loves you, he came down here to do something about your sin once and for all. I didn't see anything else like that when I studied these different religions. So Christianity stood out to me. And this is a good season. I mean, my goodness, God is identified with our sin. The Holy Spirit's come down and marked him. We've had this voice come from heaven. So it's a win-win so far. But things change abruptly. It says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then finally, moving on, it says, the Spirit immediately drove him out until the wilderness. I think this is what's hard. It says the Spirit did it. The hardest seasons for me to go through are the ones where I know God could fix it, but he chooses not to. I'll give you one example. Uh, one thing I've done for many years uh, in, in different contexts is, is modeling. I started modeling in 1995. And the thing about modeling is it's not as glamorous as you think. It sounds, I mean, there are aspects that are kind of glamorous, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but certain parts, like there's, a, there's this whole site. Like I lived in Milan. In Milan, Italy, for example, everything was mafia connected. So your agency took 50% of your money, just straight off the bat. It's really an expensive city on top of that. So I lived off a lot of tuna fish. I, I learned 101 ways to do tuna fish because I was just poor and I needed protein. Uh, and it was just, you know, any job I did, the mafia took half. Um, while I was there, I had memorized verses about God's provision. You know, I knew the Bible says, my God should supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But that was really easy when I was just getting like, I would just go, when I was in college, my parents gave me like 50 bucks a week. I would just go to the ATM and take it out. Ah, praise God, you provided for me. But it wasn't real faith because I knew my parents would put the money there. In Milan, my parents didn't put the money there because this is before ATMs even like worked over there. And so uh, it was, I was really, really dependent on God for provision. And I'm in Milan, which is, you know, I've got the most ridiculously good-looking guys in the, in the world all concentrated in one city. So any job I go out for, I've got ridiculous amounts of competition. And it's just, I, I had to be like, well, God, I, if you want me here, you need to provide for me. And so those verses became very, very real to me. And any time I went up for a job, there were times where I had one job. It was this Gillette commercial. It was three days in the Bahamas. All right? I, was just, I just had to dance in a bathing suit. That's, that's it, literally. Um, it paid 5000 bucks a day with a $15,000 buyout. First class tickets to the Bahamas. And I got it. 
I've got the, the, I had the ticket in my hand. And usually, you know, once you have the ticket in your hand, you usually never lose the job. So I'm like, this is going to be awesome. I'm getting 30 grand to dance around, you know, with a Gillette razor in my hand in the Bahamas. Uh, th this is so good. And then I get a call from my agency about a week before the job. I'm like, oh, Michael, you're not going to believe this. They changed their mind and they only want to use girls. You got to get, you know, you've been canceled from the job. You've got to bring back the ticket. He said, I broke my little model heart. I was so sad. And I was thinking, God, why? Like, why did you shut that down? That makes no sense to me. I'm in Europe. You know the scenario. You're God. You're omnipotent. You know all things. I know you love me because you proved it on the cross and stuff, but this is terrible, God. I don't understand why you're doing this. And so that day, to make it worse, I'm like, okay, the day I was supposed to fly to the Bahamas, you know, it's all cloudy and dark in Paris, and, and I'm like, okay, I, maybe I'm going to like rescue someone today. So I'm like walking by the Seine looking for people who might be drowning. Nobody was drowning. So I'm like, okay, that wasn't your will. Um, maybe I'm going to get to share the God. Maybe I'm going to share what Christ has done in my life. So I hung out with the, 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 the most... You know, the, the, the meanest, most, like, darkest model I knew. I'm like, bro, let's grab coffee. And it was, like, the worst conversation ever. It didn't go anywhere. I think I bolstered his disbelief in God, if anything. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, like, God, I don't know why you did this. And maybe I'll never know why you did this. And, you know, 20 years later, I still don't know why you did this. But the point is, it doesn't matter. God knew. And so God immediately drives Jesus into the wilderness. And... That was the hardest time of Jesus' life, I think. He was tempted, the Bible says. All points tempted. That means in any, every, any temptation you've ever been through, as dark as it, as it is, as it might be, he went through it. It wasn't just those three temptations the other Gospels bring out. We're talking relentless temptation for 40 days and for 40 nights in a weakened state with no food or water. And the whole time it was the Holy Spirit who led him to this season. So it's challenging, and you know, there are seasons that are going to be challenging. But nonetheless, that's what God did, and that's what happened next. So expect it. If John the Baptist gets thrown in jail, and he's the second greatest born of women, if Jesus is the Son of God, and he is thrown into the wilderness, then there are going to be seasons for us that are challenging. And sometimes you're just not going to understand why God might be do something, doing something here. Sometimes as I get older, I can kind of see it more clearly. And sometimes as I've matured, I'm like, you know, God, you're, you're God. You're, you're the one who knows everything, not me. There's going to be things I just don't understand. All right? So it was hard because God allowed it. It was a hard season again because of the natural circumstances he was in. It says he was with the wild animals. We know he was in the desert. We know he was hungry. He, we know he was thirsty. A lot of times I think God gets blamed for stuff that happens when it's just kind of the product of being in a broken world. Like, World War I was started because Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. Someone killed him. Murder started World War I. That wasn't really God's fault. World War II, there were more reasons, but, you know, Adolf Hitler, he was tyrannical. He wanted to dominate the world. That was one of the reasons it sparked World War II. Often, our free will, when we act in rebellion to God, produces negative results. It just happens. There are natural circumstances that produce bad seasons. God can work through them. We have that great promise. But... Uh, sometimes that's just the way it goes. Life in a broken world can be hard. All right? It was also a hard season, not just because God allowed it, not just because the natural circumstances were hard. You've got the spiritual dynamic coming in now. It says that the devil tempted him. Now, based on your understanding of where you're at, you know, whether you're a Christian or you're still uh, processing some things and still um, maybe questioning some things about Christianity, 
Uh, there's two lies that I think are significant. If you ever saw the movie The Usual Suspects, you saw it, it's a good movie, but Kevin Spacey, he says, um, I'm sure it wasn't you know, the writer of The Usual Suspects, but he said the greatest lie that the devil ever told was that he didn't exist. All right, so I think that's one problem you've got to contend with. Um, maybe you're just a person who's more science-based and not in anything supernatural. Uh, you might be being duped and you just don't realize it yet. Uh, one thing I like to go to is the police, when they wrote that song, Every Breath You Take, Every Move You Make, you know, people are, oh, it's such a love ballad. Sting, he wrote it about the devil. He didn't write it about his girlfriend or his wife. That, that, he said, I wrote that song about something sinister. I wrote that song about Satan. Every breath you take, every move you make, I'll be watching you. Kind of ruin that song for everybody. But there's this, this idea that the devil is real, the Bible says, but he's very good at making you think that he's not real. The other big lie I think the devil has is found in Eden, the biblical point of view, is that the devil's very good at making you think that God's holding out on you. That he's got something, uh, that, that your own choices are what's really, really best. And God's like this kind of cosmic killjoy who doesn't want you really to flourish. Uh, and I think it's just rooted deep in our heart because it's just easy to think that way. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the devil is there tempting him day in and day out. In the scriptures, the devil is called a thief, a liar, a murderer, a destroyer, our adversary, an angel of light. You know, this sinister opponent to, to everybody, hating humankind. And the Bible says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. You've got all these, you know, all this theology directed at who Satan is and what he does. But just know this. He's just beelining it to Jesus and trying to destroy this ministry. This ministry that's meant to save us and the devil's trying to derail it. And so the scriptures are clear also. Sometimes there's natural circumstances that oppose you and give you a bad season. Sometimes there's spiritual circumstances that oppose you and give you a bad season. And I think finally, it's hard also. This is a hard season because John the Baptist gets thrown in jail. Now, imagine you're this kind of free, you know, this, this wilderness man. And you're in the wild and you're excited because your ministry is really successful. People are coming to you. And he's, he had harsh words for people. I mean, he called people a brood of vipers. And they just took it and they still loved his ministry. And they still responded to his message. So he's got this, you know, this win-win ministry. He sets it up for Jesus. He baptizes Jesus. And then it says he's thrown in jail. Now, other Gospels tells us that, that John was thrown in jail for so long that he began to doubt that Jesus was even the Messiah. Now, how about that? He is the, based on what Jesus said, he's the greatest man who ever lived, and here he is doubting the, the reality of who Jesus said he was. And I think the other thing that we're prone, like I said, I think it's just, it was a product of the fall in Eden. We are prone just to doubt God. It's in our hearts. And that makes many seasons bad because we just doubt that God's got a plan through all these things. And so here, John the Baptist and other pastors tell us he's doubting what God's doing. So if John the Baptist doubted, how do we stand a chance? We've got these good seasons we like, but then we hit these bad seasons that aren't, they're not pleasant because of natural circumstances, because of spiritual circumstances, because God could change anything. He could bring that dream person to your life so you could end the stint of singleness if that's your problem. He could bring you that dream job that you wanted if you wanted to. And sometimes it's hard to wrestle with the fact that, God, I don't understand what you're doing. And that's just a reality. So how do we get through these seasons? You know, and then if John the Baptist doubted too, we know we're going to doubt because we're far from the greatest people who ever lived. 
And so what do we do? What's a perfect reason for this? And I think you find that in what Jesus wraps up saying. After this temptation period, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus talked about this idea of the kingdom over 70 times in his ministry. And what he's saying is, I'm bringing a new kingdom to the earth. And, you know, almost all cultures have this idea of Shangri-La, Nirvana, Utopia. And there's this, I mean, there's this, this desire we have for everything to be made right. That's also in our hearts. And this is in line with what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, I'm starting a kingdom. It's the beginning of it. And there's a term we use for that. It's called the already not yet. It means when he died and rose again, he kicked off, when he showed up and started his ministry, died and rose again, he started this kingdom that the church continues in that culminates when he comes back. All right, so the one good news about any hard season that you're in is the Bible says one day it's going to be done once for all, ended. I love sharing this story because I worked with this, this pastor uh, who had been through a lot of difficult times. Uh, he, he had lost his wife in a car accident. I don't think I shared it here last time. He lost his daughter in a car accident like two years later. So two dead family members. Um, and he was such a jovial kind of like, you know, I always say he looks like the brawny paper towel man. You could picture that in a real, you know, kind of lumberjack kind of pastor. And I remember I, I worked with him for a couple years. Then I'd be like, hey. And he was kind of cheesy too. So cheesy lumberjack. You got to picture that. And I'd be like, John, like, how are you doing today, man? And he'd be like, well, Michael, I'm going to heaven. He would always preface whatever the day was like with the fact that he was going to heaven. It rooted his day. It kind of was, it girded it up. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to heaven, so my day could be good, my day could be bad. But at the end of the day, it's a win because I know Jesus is going, coming back to fulfill this kingdom, to restore all things, to make all things new. So if you're in any bad season at all, the one encouragement that the Christian faith offers is that it promises in the end we win. The former things passed away, passes away, the, the book of Revelation says. God dries every tear from your eyes. There's no more crying, there's no more sorrow. It's all one big win. Now that's great looking down. That doesn't always help you always. So what are some, some other reasons we can look at that I think are important? Okay, so one thing I think it's important to remember, I think there's two reasons that we're here on earth. Uh, I think one of them is we're here, uh, the Westminster Lesser Catechism says that, uh, that we're here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you're here to glorify God. You might know that, you might not know that. Um, but hard seasons help you in that process. Right? So First uh, Peter 4, 12 through 13 says, Beloved, do not, he was an apostle, uh, one of the disciples, Peter was. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter's saying, when you go through hard seasons, they just make the good seasons all the sweeter. If everything was always a win, you just really wouldn't appreciate when good things happen. So hard seasons prepare you to appreciate better seasons. And Peter's saying that's on a cosmic scale also. Paul, uh, he wrote three-fourths of the New Testament. He says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in all of us. 
So there's almost like this inverse relationship to the more suffering you go through on earth. The harder the seasons you have now, the more glory you'll receive later. And, so, and I think that helps you in your, your ability to understand and worship God. You glorify him more when you've been put through challenging circumstances more. I think another way to look at it is this, 1 Peter 1.6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter's writing, writing is saying, hard seasons refine your faith. Like my grandmother, um, for example, you pick any older person you know that's been through hard times. There's a depth to them that you just, that you just can't fabricate. You know, my grandmother would talk about, like, um, Cade, my oldest son, he had infant airways disease. So whenever his lungs would kind of close up or he had, like, a, a cough that's called croup, it was kind of scary, it's like, it seems like he couldn't breathe, we had this thing called a nebulizer, and this, this pharmaceutical drug called albuterol, and I just put it in there, shot it in his lungs, and they opened up. I kind of prayed too, but I was kind of relying on the nebulizer and the albuterol. My dad had the same disease. Rewind, you know, to the 1930s. Uh, my grandmother, all she had was prayer and warm Florida air. That's all she had. So she would just carry my dad, walk outside, and just pray. And just pray that his lungs would open up. And that's all she had. There was no ER around. There was no albuterol. There was no nebulizer. It was literally just her faith that God would hopefully keep her baby alive. And I would talk to her about all these life through the depression and all these things. And I'm like, wow, Grandma, the hard times refined your faith so much. Right? And I think that's ultimately what we want. We talk about, I want to be real. You know, that's valued. I want to be genuine. Hard seasons make you genuine. All right. Next thing. I think the secondary purpose we're here. One is to understand God and to know God more, more clearly. The second is to be able to serve people uh, to the best capacity you possibly can, can serve them. To love God and to love people. Hard seasons make you better at both. Uh, James 1, 2 through 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of different kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James, who is the brother of Jesus, he writes that hard times make you steadfast and complete as a person. They make you strong. They make you whole. They make you a better person to be around. Shallow people aren't usually like, oh, I love that. that he is so shallow. He is so fun to hang around. Usually people don't say that. Usually it's like, oh, that person's so deep. That's usually a good thing. Right? Depth of character is a good thing. Hard seasons produce depth of character. Let me give you one more verse. 1 Corinthians 1, 3-4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we're able to comfort those, others, in the same way which we've been comforted. What Paul writes is that sometimes, if you're a believer, a Christian, God will take you through hard circumstances so he can get you through hard circumstances so that you can relate to a world that's going through hard circumstances. Does that make sense? God takes you through things so he can get you through things so you can minister to people who are going through things. You can connect to them. Um, otherwise, it's just like you're, 
you just don't understand people. You just don't get it. So I think sometimes God will take you through challenging times, hard seasons, because he wants to put people in your life that you can minister to effectively. Maybe you've seen it happen before. Maybe you're in the middle of it. You don't see that. I guarantee you, you'll be able to use that connection, use that suffering. It'll be a link to somebody that you connect with solely based on the dysfunction in your life, the hard times in your life. So let me wrap these things up. When I look at this to conclude, I think there's two big messages for whether you're a believer or not a believer. Um, If you're not a believer, um, I think it's significant uh, that it says that angels were ministering to Jesus in his hard season. Sometimes I think God allows difficult circumstances to come into your life so that you cry out to him. So that you look at things maybe that in different ways that maybe you wouldn't have ever looked at had there not been a challenging season introduced to you. They literally make you see God. I'm sure Eric can attest to this. As a pastor for uh, going on 15 years, I met many people whose hard circumstances drove them to church literally and had them asking questions that they never would have asked. It's significant that Jesus has these angels ministering to him. Because nowhere else in scripture does it say angels showed up to minister to Jesus. They showed up to declare stuff. They showed up to tell people stuff about Jesus. He said once in a situation where one of his disciples chopped off a man's ear in defense, Jesus sticks the ear back on. He's like, Peter, put away your sword. If I wanted to, I could summon 12 legions of angels to come down and wipe out everybody, but I don't want to do that. So here, the circumstance had to be so bad that Jesus said they either summoned some angels for some help, you know, God, they need backup, and they came down and helped him, or God just said, hey, this is a bad time. We need to help Jesus. But nonetheless, the difficult circumstances invited something supernatural in. So if you're not, if you're still processing Christianity, I want to encourage you, the hard seasons sometimes help you see things you wouldn't have seen in the past. Now, if you're a Christian and you're here, I want to kind of finalize that prophecy I alluded to. What's interesting about this prophecy where it says, you know, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove upon Jesus is the context of when that that prophecy was uttered 700 years earlier, um, Israel is in captivity. They're getting beat down by these world powers, beat down by the Assyrians, beat down by the Babylonians. And Isaiah kind of cries out, he says, Oh Lord, if you would only rend the heavens and come down so that the mountains would tremble. He says it twice. So he wants God to come down scary and judge and, and basically vindicate us, crush our opponents. He's calling for judgment. If only you would come down, God, in such a forceful way, crush our opponents and make the mountains tremble. That's what Isaiah wanted. I'm glad that's not what God wanted. How different it is. God comes down in the form of a dove. The only other time you see a dove mentioned in the Old Testament was when a guy named Noah, after the world had been judged, was trying to find out if the judgment was over. And he sent out a dove. He sent out a raven and never came back. He sent out a dove. And the dove came back with an olive branch, so a symbol for peace, in its mouth, showing that the judgment was finished. How fitting that when God inaugurates the ministry of Jesus, he fulfills that prophecy, he puts a spin on it. No, 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 I'm not coming down to judge. I'm coming down to restore. So if you're a believer and you're going through a hard time, believe God, he will get you through it. He will use it to refine your faith and to make you a better witness for him and let you see him and understand the gospel more clearly. Amen? Let's close in prayer. So God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for what we see, God. 
thank you for the fact that uh, whether we know you well uh, have for, or have forgotten you or uh, are still processing what we think about you, we're so thankful that your word, God, it, just, it, it speaks to us in so many different ways. So I pray for everyone here, God, uh, who might be going through a hard season. God, I pray you would use this hard season to show yourself to them. Uh, use this hard season to uh, refine faith if necessary. God, use this hard season to make us hope for the restoration. God, to make us long for the time you come back to make all things right, God. Um, we just ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.